What is the new covenant and who is in it? On this episode, we talk about covenant theology and dive into the book of Hebrews and Jeremiah chapter 31. So join us now as we build, fight, protect, and lead. This is the patriarchy. Rise up, O men of God, have done with lesser... They shall be my people, and I will be their God. And I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me always, for their own good, and for the good of their children after them. I will make an everlasting covenant with them, that I will not turn away from them, to do them good. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts, so that they will not turn away from me. That was Jeremiah 32, 38-40. And I am Joseph Spurgeon, pastor of Sovereign King Church. You're listening to the Patriarchy Podcast on Roundtable Media, a ministry of Sovereign King Church. Woman, get back in here and make me a sandwich. Have you ever wondered how many feminists it takes to change a light bulb? Well, 15 is what I hear, 15 of them. It takes one to screw the light bulb in. One, to excoriate men for creating the need for illumination. One, to blame men for inventing such a faulty means of illumination. One, to suggest the whole screwing it in bit to be a little rape-like. One, to deconstruct the light bulb itself as being phallic. One, to blame men for not changing the bulb. And one, to blame men for trying to change the bulb instead of letting a woman do it. One, to blame men for creating a society that discourages women from changing light bulbs. And One to blame men for creating a society where women change too many light bulbs. We also need one to advocate that light bulb changers should have wage parity with electricians. You can't forget the one who's going to threaten to use a coat hanger if she isn't allowed to destroy the light bulb before it's ever used. Also, one to say she's not happy with light bulbs, commit adultery, divorce her husband, make the children miserable, and collect child support for the next 18 years. One to alert the media that women are now out light bulbing men. And one to screech at the light bulb for having gone out. And finally, you do have the one who just sits there taking pictures for her blog. For photo evidence that men are unnecessary. Okay. So, well, that had nothing to do with the sandwich. But I was eating lunch earlier and my son said, are you about done eating that sandwich? So I took one more bite and said, well, that's a wrap. I am so sorry (laughs) to my world. I am so sorry to my world. This is not what we want. Well, it's not a wrap, actually. You guys are in for a treat today. We have a lengthy discussion ahead on the issue of covenant theology. I have returning with me Zach Jackson. Zach uh, last participated 
in a baptism debate here on the Patriarchy Podcast. If you haven't heard that episode, you need to go back and listen to that. Zach uh, defended the infant Baptist or paedo-baptist position, and uh, it was a good debate. I thought both men did a good job. I think you'll be encouraged from that. But Zach and I had actually, before we ever even talked about having that debate, before we ever planned that, I had asked Zach to come on the show and talk about covenant theology. Zach leads the men's ministry at Sovereign King Church, and he has been going through a series in our, what we call our Genevan pub. It's like our, our, week, our monthly outreach for the men, where the men get together and we fellowship and uh, talk about a theological topic and uh, smoke cigars and have a good time. And uh, he's been going through covenant theology with the men. We've kind of covered uh, from the book of Genesis all the way through the end of the Bible, and we're covering it in chunks. Last time we just talked about the time from Abraham to Moses. And so it's been very good. So I wanted Zach to come on the show, talk about covenant theology, talk about what the new covenant is, and uh, um, lead us through the passages in Hebrews and Jeremiah and help uh, unpack those passages because there's a whole lot that goes into uh, those passages in regards to debates that, 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 well, for the one, they transcend the baptism debate. It goes even further than that. There's lots of implications, implications about whether there can be even Christian nations, implications about ecclesiology and, and so forth. And so, uh, Jeremiah 31, the nature of the new covenant is the crux of a lot, a lot of debate, a lot of, uh, um, understanding of larger issues, including eschatology. And so I'm going to have Zach come on. We're going to interview him. He's going to, we're going to spend a lot of time diving through this. This is a pretty extra long episode. I do want to say one quick word though, that, uh, the sound quality in the interview may not be the greatest. Zach or somebody had some air conditioning blowing, and so you you might hear some background noise. I hope it's not too distracting. The content is super good, and so give it your best listening. I think you'll be very encouraged. I think you'll be challenged, and uh, I think uh, um, I think you'll see why it is so important to get the new covenant. Right. We're talking covenant theology. So uh, you, this is a podcast for men. We often talk very practical issues. And and, and now we're getting into like theological, um, maybe abstract in some ways of, of a talk, topic. And yet uh, I think this is very important, important for men to be able to grasp. I think it's going to uh, uh, impact how you read the Bible. But... Um, so that, let's just get into why why this topic. Why is covenant theology important? Why do you think it's important? And and what would we miss out on if we didn't have covenant theology? If we didn't get this right? Uh, I could spend the entire time uh, answering that question, but uh, briefly, uh, it's it's where the rubber hits the road. Uh, God's covenant is the way that He has a relationship with his people. It is the context of his uh, specific revelation to uh, his people. And uh, it's where he gives us his, his law and his uh, promises for our, our lives. And it's the, uh, it's the thing that uh, God gives us to save us. 
you know, uh, his, his covenant with, with his people is where he gives us his grace. And, uh, it, we, we don't just have a one-on-one, uh, relationship with Jesus. Uh, we, we are part of a, a community of people called out by God. Um, and, and his covenant is, is the means by which he, he calls us out and unites us to himself. Um, yeah what if we get this wrong right if we if we get this wrong we're going to misunderstand our relationship with god we're going to misunderstand uh things that are in the bible if we want to take a very individualistic uh look at uh just you know me and my bible and i i'm saved and uh now i'm just got a one-on-one relationship with Jesus, uh, that's going to affect how we live. It's going to affect how we treat other people. It's going to affect uh, how the church acts corporately in in the world <clears throat> and uh, how we obey God to accomplish his great commission. Uh, the, there's implications all, all the way down. There's a reason why the Bible is filled with God talking about his covenant and his promises. Uh, it, it isn't just uh, random uh, lone wolves or, you know, guys out there running around by themselves out uh, them against the world. It's, it's God's church has been given the world. That's the promise to God's covenant people. So you're... In some of these implications, I'm already hearing because I, I, I've, I've studied this. Even just the the background that you're bringing with the covenant theology, the the about God's people, the church, the world. These are all important things that I think come from the study of this topic. And uh, you've been uh, the reason we have you on the the podcast. You've been uh, helping to teach the men of Sovereign King uh, just through covenant theology. We've started right at the very beginning of the Bible. I, don't, I actually don't know if that's exactly where we started. We may have started with what we're going to talk about today with, with Hebrews, but I know we went back and we went recovering from Genesis through uh, uh, the fall and then from the fall to Noah, Noah to Abraham, and just recently uh, Noah to Moses. But uh, 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 so you're saying, though, about the implications this has implications for how we live, right? It has implications for how we understand the Bible, our place in it, our place within the the people of God. Right? If you get this wrong, then or or you have a different theology, you you may have like two peoples of God. Uh, the, I guess it's dispensationalism and that kind of thing. So yeah, it's important. Um, before we kind of get too far ahead of ourselves, let's back up a step. And, and just for somebody that's maybe unfamiliar altogether, what is covenant theology? So covenant theology is uh, sometimes defined in its distinction from dispensational theology, where uh, God interacts with uh, different people at different times in different ways, and they're very distinct from each other, as opposed to covenant theology, where God is essentially operating uh his relationship with his people over time there's different administrations but it's the same covenant it's the same theme it's 
it's the same uh, group of people, but how, how it looks and how uh, he interacts with them changes. So typically in covenant theology, there's uh, the there's three main covenants, uh, the covenant of redemption, which is exclusively made between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, this is their decision to uh, save humanity. Uh, and then there's what's called the covenant of works. This is the relationship first set up uh, with Adam in the garden, where he's he's given the garden, he's given uh, the world to care for, and uh, all he has to do is uh, be fruitful and multiply and uh, eat from any fruit that he wants, but he's not supposed to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Um, that, that would be considered the covenant of works. And then after uh, they eat from the tree, and they fall into sin and death, and because Adam is our covenant head, he's our representative uh, for all humanity, all of humanity falls with him, uh, then God uh, makes a promise in the garden that he will uh, send uh, a seed of a woman to uh, crush the head of the serpent, and uh, his heel will be bruised in the process. That is the beginning of the covenant of grace, uh, and the covenant of grace uh, involves uh, the... Uh, promises to Eve there in the garden, to Noah, to Abraham, Moses, David, up until uh, Christ and the new covenant. Uh, he is the seed of the woman that crushes the head of the serpent, but his heel is bruised in the process. So from uh, beginning, from the fall to the end uh, and uh, past where we're living now to the consummation where the bride of Christ is presented to him, uh, holy and pure and uh, spotless um, there uh, after the uh, the last day uh, that is the consummation of the covenant of grace so we're we're living uh, in a time after God has sort of sealed the deal uh, in in Christ's death burial and resurrection but uh, we are still the covenant of people living uh, the covenant of people living in the world distinct from from the rest of the world uh, conquering for Christ uh, fulfilling the Great Commission okay so you, you talk about three covenants and and how they're kind of this kind of covers the the breadth of the Bible and even where we're at and where we're headed to okay I'm gonna ask a really dumb question maybe uh, what is a covenant all right. Uh, a covenant uh, basically can be defined as uh, a relationship. It's sovereignly administrated by God. It has attending uh, blessings and cursings, and it's often accompanied by various oaths, uh, signs, and ceremonies. So you can uh, take that definition, and it kind of sums up the, the various administrations that we see uh, from, you know, Moses and uh uh, Abraham with circumcision, and we've got the ceremonies uh, involved and wrapped up in all that to the Passover. Uh, th that's just a blanket definition. We could go, we could go a lot deeper in it, but basically, it's the way that God has a relationship with us, and He gives us all these visible signs and seals around it as well. Now, you, you've brought up the word administration. And so I'm going to ask them the other question about that. What does that mean? What is an administration of a covenant? So uh, the way that God has revealed uh, himself and what uh, his plans are 
for his people has um, sort of been uh, revealed slowly over time. So Abraham, it says, looked forward to Christ's day. He saw Christ's day and he was happy, uh, but he didn't really see, you know, Jesus walk around and he didn't see what the disciples saw when, when they were there. Uh, he saw it um, in, in, in smaller bits and pieces through God's promises. Uh, and so the, the administrations further open up and reveal more about God and his plan for salvation in Christ. Uh, circumcision uh, points to Christ. Uh, the Passover points to Christ. The Levitical ceremonial system points to Christ. These are all different kinds of administrations. At different times, there's different um, covenant heads. Uh, so, uh, for example, David, he is uh, one of the first kings of Israel, but symbolically, uh, he is Christ. He is the king of kings. He's the king of the whole world. Uh, that's, that's an administration that points us towards Christ and his ultimate fulfillment as the, um, the final Adam is what Paul calls him. Uh, he is the, the final covenant head. He's the final administrator. Uh, he, he's the one that it pointed to all from the beginning. And, uh, he's able to do that because he's both man. He, he can be our, our covenant head representative, but he's God. He's perfect. And so uh, we actually need God to be our, our covenant head is kind of the point of the whole story. So by administrations here, then, if I'm hearing you right, it, this is how God uh, reveals his promises to his people, how he reveals Christ to his people. Uh, would you say this is how apply, God applies grace to his people in different times? Is that how you, you might... Would you say it that way? Yeah, so Paul uses the language of uh, types and shadows. Um, the different administrations were, were types and shadows pointing to Christ. And uh, we live under the, the new covenant. It was appointed by Christ. Uh, we're given the sign of baptism. We're given the Lord's Supper uh, at the... Um, revealing at the first Lord's Supper, he says, you know, this is the blood of the new covenant. This is, uh, it's made in my blood. And you do this until I return. So that's, um, that is a way that teaches us to remember what Christ did for us. And the uh, types and shadows, the administrations beforehand from uh, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, uh, Moses, David, uh, they were pointing forward to that sacrifice, uh, that that final way that God is going to save His people. The wages of sin is death, uh, and all, you know only Christ's blood is, is what can be our substitutionary atonement. All those administrations pointed to that, and now uh, through the Lord's Supper and the New Covenant, we look back to that sacrifice. All right, so we, we've kind of talked broadly about what a covenant is, covenant theology. Uh, uh, you've kind of you've kind of worked, worked us through actually a kind of a whole Bible thing. You, but you've used words like covenant of works, covenant of redemption, or administration, and these things. So let me like play a devil's advocate a little bit here. 
are these things that are being thrust up on the text? Because uh, someone might say, well, I don't see those words or something like that in the, in the Bible. So is this something being like read into the text? And so you have this preconceived system? Because I know that that might be an accusation people have. Or is this something that we get from the text? How does how does this work? Because I, I, hearing you say this is definitely a way of reading the scriptures. But how do we gather it? Do we gather it from the text or is it something read into it? Well, you know, anytime we develop uh, theology or we try to have a systematic theology, we're in, in danger of creating something that we impose on the text. That, that's always a danger. So we need to make sure that we can read the Bible, read it in its context, and it's consistent with whatever kind of systematic theology that, that we do hold. Systematic theologies are helpful for... Um, understanding and interpreting the text but we don't want it to overrule or uh you know overshadow we don't want it to manipulate the text uh and everybody's in danger of that and uh you know covenant theology isn't exactly monolithic either but you know how many forms of dispensationalism are there there's many forms of covenant theology as well but the most basic version of it uh we will definitely say that it is derived from the text of Scripture. Paul talks about the the covenants of the promise. He, he says that the Gentiles uh, coming into Christ, I believe this is Ephesians chapter 2, that we uh, inherit the covenants of the promise. Uh, and th- this is... The, so we would translate that into covenant theology lingo. That would be the administrations of the covenant of grace the many forms, the covenants of the promise and the promises of the covenant of grace. So we, we really do derive this from Scripture. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, Scripture has to interpret Scripture. And if something uh, doesn't add up, Scripture has to win. Then um, our interpretation has to change. So even if someone, you know, wants to adopt covenant theology, yes, they have, they have to submit that in, in every way to Scripture. That that is our rule for faith in life. Good, good. Now, I agree with you. I I believe in covenant theology because I believe it comes from the scriptures, and that we can show the data. I I I had a seminary class where speaking of this uh, understanding of the Bible and be able, you, to be able to put things together, we often have to use phrases and words that are not found explicitly in the text or. or like the word Trinity, it's a it's a word that helps us have the concept. I think of the Nicene Creed and um, the words that they they formed to understand the nature of Christ and the nature of the Trinity. They they it all came down to a matter of uh, a few uh, Greek words and and uh, that are not actually found in Scripture, but the concepts are. So, um, uh, so th- I think you're you're very right on to say that all of our systems and all things have to come from scripture and constantly be uh, uh, read through the lens of scripture as we develop these things that help us read scripture. So going back to the class, the, one of the professors talked about this hermeneutical spiral. Right. Like the, the, the more you read scripture, the more you understand it, and the more you understand it, the better you're able to read it. And, and, and every reading continues to, uh, Lord willing, spiral you upward in a better understanding of reading it. 
And so, yeah, we don't right. completely understand it the first time we read it through, right? It's and and every time we read it through, we can connect more dots. And I look at a lot of um, sort of my own personal theological development is connecting dots. Uh, there there are things in scripture that as you read through you 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 kind of ignore because you're focusing on one thing uh, versus the other and, and you're seeing the way things connect here but then later on once you kind of have a grasp of this or that topic you move on and you're connecting more dots and you see the way that uh, scripture I mean it just it, it's beautiful I'm sure you've seen that graph that has all the it looks like a rainbow, all the connections of verses and allusions mm, yep, yep. Uh, throughout scripture. So, you know, it's, it's a not, ne- it's a never ending process in this life, uh, to grow in our understanding. Uh, um, and you know, that's, that's the beauty of covenant theology to me because God has, he's given us this thing to understand. He's given it to his people the scripture says that uh, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the revealed things, they belong to us and to our children. And God's covenant is his revelation to us. It's it's the way that we can relate to him. So uh, he's given it to us, we, and, and we should study it, and we should seek to understand it. Yeah, I think that, that actually takes us back to that first question I asked, why and, and how is this good for our listeners, and is that... I think as you understand the covenant theology, you understand how God works with his people, how the the work that he's doing now with his people is not completely different and and not uh, uh, new in the sense as like entirely distinct and different than what he's done before. When you start seeing that, you see how the different connections, it will bolster your faith. Every time I study the word of God, like for preach, for example, I, I see those connections like that rainbow thing you were talking about. And that uh, that always encourages my faith. Like, I, I believe the Bible more every day, every time I read it, because of that. Yeah, because of the connections. I mean, it's, it's beautiful in the way that God uh, has had this book written over all this amount of time. But... The, the connections and, and the way the types and the shadows connect and and the way that uh, we can apply it to our lives. I mean, I, I agree. We could talk about evidence for, for God or evidence for the Bible, but simply studying it and, it, and having my eyes opened uh, increases my faith. Every time I study a topic or get in and just read, I'm like, wow, I can't believe, like, I didn't see that before. And, uh, you know, that's... I believe the work of the Holy Spirit as as we grow in our faith. Now you have you've been teaching in our in our church and you, you, you've been thinking through this. And one of the the things that you've been really uh, helpful for with me is understanding the nature of the new covenant because that is, I think, probably the most controversial aspect of covenant theology regarding the the nature of the new covenant right that's where the debate all lies so uh, there's a whole lot of argument about that maybe just kind of give me the broad overview first of what what is the debate about the new covenant what is that and what's that all about so somebody's never heard it they're on an island somewhere never heard it just tell us what the debate over the nature of the new covenant how that applies to covenant theology 
Okay, so the debate uh, kind of uh, springs out of the uh, the baptism debate, um, or you know, it, it's hard to tell which which came first, you know, the chicken or the egg. But the the things are very related uh, in um, classic. Uh, covenant theology, Presbyterian covenant theology, the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, the, the New Covenant, and the New Covenant people, which is the church, are seen as a um, a mixed community of both the elect and non-elect. There's also a visible and invisible uh, aspect to God's church, but uh, our view of the new covenant is that it is comprised of the elect and non-elect and uh the new covenant is not strictly the uh invisible church <clears throat> we can read the confessions i got them up here on my screen here uh, if you want to do that but the other side of that uh would be the uh the baptist sort of version which is that the new covenant is comprised of only the elect uh, and that's primarily argued from uh, the book of Hebrews chapter 8, which is a quotation from the prophet Jeremiah, uh, where it talks about um, the they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. And that's sort of where the, deba- the debate lies. And uh, there there's uh, implications that come from that. So if the new covenant is, compri- is a mixed covenant, uh, as pretty much everyone agrees the administrations of the old covenant were (laughs) God's covenant people were a people that he saved collectively but among them there were those truly saved the elect and then there are those uh, that were still in covenant with God but ultimately they would fall away Uh, now does the new covenant operate that same way this has implications for our uh, ecclesiology How, how do we look at the church do we look at the person uh, that we're worshiping next to uh, as a part of the church, or is it a secret uh, that if they're elect or not, we don't know. So they may or may not actually be a part of the new covenant. They may or may not actually be a part of uh, God's church. So we need to investigate and find out, and then we'll treat we'll treat them a certain way based on how, how we feel or what we think about them versus uh, looking at, it the same way you know uh this is what god has revealed to us uh this isn't a secret thing god's church is a, a revealed thing on the earth we're we're a community that um it will be perfect at the end uh revelation 20 21 22 uh the, the summation of all things the bride is presented to christ perfect but in history uh i think we can argue from uh the, the new testament that there there's some there's some blemishes there and we we still have a mixed community um so yeah that's the debate then the debate is what is the uh nature of the new covenant who exactly is in it and so you have on i guess one hand the covenant theology which says that the new covenant is made up of both the, uh, has both those who are regenerate, non-regenerate, or, or another way, those who are elect and not elect, at least externally or, or visibly, uh, a part of the covenant. They're the part of the external elements. They receive the, the sacraments and 
make up what we call often call the visible church here on earth uh, together. Some of those people may not be truly saved. Some of them are. We don't know, but one day, uh, as you were saying, the church will be made perfect and uh, uh, it will be revealed. Like the, the, the wheat and the tares will be separated, the goat and the sheep separated, that kind of thing. Right, and, and then, that's done later. Yep. So that's one side. The other side seems to be, I want to say the other side, uh, we're talking, uh, I would say, uh, New Covenant theology. There's a thing called New Covenant theology. We talk dispensationalism, progressive covenantal theology. So they use these words covenant, actually, which can get confusing for people. And then even uh, sometimes what's called 1689 federalism. Uh, I don't know, there may be other titles and other things, but the, the other side, the one... They have differences, but one thing they have in common is to say that the new covenant is only made up, even now, of uh, the regenerate, only made up of the uh, uh, elect. And so uh, it is, that is what makes it different than the old uh, covenants. That is the thing that makes it difference. And so they point to, I guess you said Hebrews 8, and I guess that's Jeremiah 31, and that's where the debate is. But as you said, it's very important, I think, for ecclesiology, probably eschatology, um, other issues. And this is very important to me uh, that we get this right, because I do think there are implications for how we view the church, how we view how Christianity goes forth to the nations, and how... uh, um, uh, what, what the future will look like. So uh, let's get into that debate, if you will, regarding that. So um, the, I guess the locus of the debate is Hebrews 8. So why, why, don't you, why don't you read that? If you have that available, read that for us. And then let's start talking about, because I, I know for me this is the, the crux of the whole thing of covenant theology right here. I, I think it comes down to this. Yeah, so. I, it it's uh, it's unfortunate that it, it does come down to this passage so much, because if the uh, new covenant was comprised of only the elect, and if it was that di- uh, different from the administrations of the covenants before, it seems like there would be a whole lot more passages to discuss. But we've just got this one apparently. This one proves it. Uh, I'm going to read Hebrews chapter 8, um, and uh, we'll just pick it apart from there. I kind of want to do a little bit of uh, exegesis on, on the passage. Um, starting at 8 verse 1, now the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, so it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle. For see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown to you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. 
For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. For finding fault with them, he says, and this is the quotation from Jeremiah, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is a covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen, and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. When he said, A new covenant, he has made the first obsolete, but whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. That's the end of the uh, eighth chapter. So, uh, I guess to kind of sum up the, the argument from the other side that we're uh, considering, um, there is the quotation from the book of Hebrews that says that this is a new covenant that's not like the old one. And it says that they shall all know me from the least to the greatest of them. Uh, and they don't have to teach in each other anymore to know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest of them. And uh, this is basically <coughs> taken from this passage to mean, see, they all, everyone in the new covenant, what's different is they all know God salvifically. Therefore, they are all the elect. These are the people that God has, uh, you know, chosen a lot. A lot of the uh, people uh, on that side are also Calvinists. So they would say that these are the elect uh, and um, they, they know God salvifically. Uh, I got a quote from John MacArthur here. Uh, he says that uh, the, this is the watershed issue, how we interpret uh, Hebrews 8. The watershed issue, I believe, on this whole discussion he says, the essence of the new covenant is everybody in it knows God savingly. And that is uh, supposed to be proven from this passage. Um, there's an article from James White I was just reading earlier today where he uh, essentially says the same thing, that the language is just so plain that uh, it can't be ignored that everyone in the new covenant, this is uh, soteriological, this is about salvation, they know God in a saving way and uh i just you know that has so many implications coming from it um that don't make sense to me uh when i read the rest of scripture so i kind of scratched my head at this when i first heard it you know it sounds like a good argument you know if i was them i'd totally make that argument but well that's uh, uh yeah in fact that that's uh that's strong man their argument if we can here okay. like because uh, uh, I think when you initially read the passage, as you just read it, I mean, you can see, you can you can hear some of these things that that I think MacArthur and them are saying. It, at least, what do you want to say on the surface, it appears that way, right? That like like if you just pick the passage up and you read it, it says making a covenant not like the old one so obviously then everything that follows is completely different than uh uh what was in the old covenant i mean that's what it appears to be 
And it does uh, it does appear like, well, everyone's going to know from the least to the greatest. There'll be no teachers and that kind of thing. And the so, sins will be forgiven? Yes. So the implication is that the, the new covenant is where sins are actually forgiven. The old covenant didn't actually offer forgiveness of sins, but the new covenant does. Um, yeah, and, and that's because of the blood of, of Jesus, which the old covenant did not have. So they, they might argue, someone might argue, old covenant people were forgiven of their sins kind of retroactively right so well some uh, you know a more dispensational approach would say that they were forgiven in a different way uh, altogether uh so but to be fair to the more uh, covenantal uh side that still interprets this as uh being you know fully salvific uh they would say that they would say uh, it's it's retroactive. They looked forward to the sacrifice of Christ. We look back to the sacrifice of Christ, but it's the sacrifice of Christ that's the only thing that has ever saved anybody. Yeah, uh, and would you disagree with that? No, I actually completely agree with that. Uh, okay, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. I don't think that any of us would disagree with that. So I think there are things, if right off the bat, regarding this, that I think all sides can agree with, is that Jesus is. Uh, his sacrifice is what forgives sins and, and is what pays the way for sins. So, okay, well, so that's what it appears to be. I wanted to, I want our, I want our listeners to really feel the weight, weight of that because I, I think there are going to be a lot of people that actually, for one, agree with that, that listen. And so you're going to, you're, you're about to say, no, that's not what it, it means. I know that's what you're about to say. So, but I really wanted us to, 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 to feel the weight of that because. For me, uh, uh, um, coming out of 1689 federalism on this, that this was a, a hard thing to hear. You, you, you get, uh, I think you get told this enough that you can see it, and um, uh, I think it's a, it, there's a strong argument just on a first or second listen through that uh, uh, is there. And I think I'm not saying that people that that we're going to disagree with us have only carelessly looked at the passage. But I do think, as you're about to show, that there's more to it. So why don't you, why don't you now make your case for why that's not, <laughs> that's not the case? Right. Well, uh, first let me say that uh, I come from kind of a similar background. When I first became a Christian in my uh, late teens, I, uh, it, I was reading some... Uh, Josh McDowell and I was listening to Christian radio and so I got a lot of uh, J. Vernon McGee and John MacArthur and I, uh, I, got, I got sort of sent through the um, modern American evangelical uh, uh, machine there you know and uh, I got really invested in Norman Geisler I loved apologetics so I got really into his apologetics and then into his theology, which is uh, a dispensational <clears throat> Baptistic theology. And I ended up uh, going to a Baptist church here for a while. Uh, I'm in Louisville, Kentucky at Sojourn. Everybody knows about that church, I think, in the Baptist world. Um, and But it wasn't until later when I started to uh, get into some covenant theology through guys like Greg Bonson, which again, apologetics was sort of the thing that led me into the uh, theology side uh, that I started to 
say that, you know, there's a lot of stuff in here that I've been believing. It doesn't add up. It doesn't make sense. So, um, but sort of the last thing that I really needed to figure out was this passage because it always comes up in all these discussions and it's, it sounds like a, a winning blow. They shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. Uh, and this is the blood of Christ. He saves perfectly. Uh, so how could anybody be in the new covenant and uh, not know God savingly? Because his blood saves uh, perfectly. It's, uh, that's the language that's used. But, you know, the Bible, uh, like we talked about before, it, it isn't designed to, uh, to work for our theology. Our theology is supposed to come from the Bible. And this passage is, is, is in a, a context. And we need to understand that context. We need to understand why the author, the book of Hebrews, is even quoting this passage to begin with. And uh, when, where was this passage used before? And who used it? And how did they use these words? These are, these are the ways that we study the Bible in every other situation, right? Um, we will run into a lot of problems if we want to interpret all Scripture in a very wooden, literal sense. Um, there would be a lot of contradictions. And I think one of the problems with interpreting this passage the way that uh, we, we just described a few minutes ago is that does also create contradictions. But I don't, I don't want to get to that, that yet. Um, I, I want to kind of just say, uh, well, what can we get from this passage by itself? Um, first, uh, notice uh, who, who the new covenant is made with. Uh, it's made with the, the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Uh, this is the same historical people that God has always been in covenant with. This, this is not like a do-over. Um, it's not a blank slate covenant, uh, and its, new, its newness doesn't erase the past. It's Israel and Judah we're talking about here. Um, now, uh, we learn from Ephesians 2 that the blood of Christ means that Gentile believers become citizens of the commonwealth of, of Israel and included in uh, the, the covenants of the promise. Um, so we know that the old covenant or the old covenants are not erased by the coming of the, the new covenant, even though the end of this passage talks about something becoming obsolete and passing away. Uh, all, it's also worth noting that... Um, he says the first covenant. What does he mean by the first covenant? Because there were multiple covenants before this, but it seems that he has one particular kind of covenant in mind that uh, he says it has it's it has a fault because if God did not find it faultless, he would not have had occasion to bring another one. Um, now. Uh, I want to get into what it says about the new covenant here, and I want to talk about some similarities with the old covenant. And I'm going to use the old covenant in the sense of pretty much everything that came before uh, Abraham, Moses, the Levites, the temple, David, all of that. Uh, I'll kind of use that language uh, uh, because. It's all wrapped up. This is Israel and Judah, right? That's that's their deal. That's their covenants. Um, now, it says that it, it will not be like uh, the covenant which are made with their fathers when he took them out of Egypt, 
that's a reference to uh, the Jews at the time of uh, the Exodus. Um, so the idea of what covenant he's talking here, it's something that has to do with around the time of the Exodus uh, when God took them uh, out of Egypt. But this is the covenant that he's going to make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts. Now, what I'm going to explain here uh, is basically that this, there are things here that it describes about the new covenant that aren't necessarily brand new. The idea of laws being written on um, hearts and minds is uh, something that occurs in the old covenant as well. Um, Psalm 40 verse 8 says, I delight to do your will, O my God, your law is within my heart. Uh, Psalm 37.30 says, The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom, and his tongue speaks justice. The law of God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. Proverbs 30, verse 3 says, do not, do not let kindness and truth leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So, uh, well, there's another one, Isaiah 51. Hear me. Uh, this is 51.7. Hear me, you who know what is right, you people who have taken my instruction to heart. Do not fear the reproach of mere mortals or be terrified by their insults. So the internalization of God's law here is not something that's brand new. Uh, now, I don't want to downplay uh, God writing his laws in our hearts and our minds in the new covenant by saying, well, that's old news. I think that everything in the new covenant uh, becomes greater in, in its scope, its application. Um, we, we have... We have more of, of what than what they had before. So there is something greater about the way that God writes his, uh, his law on our hearts and minds in the new covenant. But it, uh, it's not something that is distinct from the old covenants. Um, what's the next here? God will be their God. Uh, I will be their God. They will be my people. Uh, this is not brand new to the new covenant either this is something that's very typical in the language of the old covenant uh exodus 29 45 i will dwell among the sons of israel and will be their god and they shall know that i am the lord their god who brought them out of the land of egypt that i might dwell among them i am the lord their god uh, leviticus 26 12 i will also walk among you and be your god and you shall be my people so me being their god them being my people this is not brand new to the new covenant either this is something that uh is uh uh what's the best word it's something that's handed down through it it's it it's um the word is escaping me uh it's it, it's not new uh it, it's a congruity uh, with the old covenant um i i wonder maybe you were going to get into this so i might be jumping the gun if forgive me if i am that the the passage Hebrew is quoting Jeremiah on this, I will be their God, and he's speaking to people that have been taken away in a captivity. Am I am I, am I right on that? Like yes, or they're getting ready to yeah. And so the idea God is almost like abandoned them, but that's not always been the case. God has always been their God, right? Like as you were saying, God had been their God, and God had. Uh, promised to walk with them. He walked them through the wilderness. The, the 
the pillar of cloud, uh, uh, fire, the cloud, cloud in the sky. The uh, uh, God was always in their presence. He, he promised to be their God. He, he says that over and over again. But then they get this discipline, this judgment that comes because of their sins. And it's like, where is God? And so now, again, the promise again of this new covenant about God being their God. It's not establishing something um, completely different, completely brand new, but in a sense of uh, renewal of what God has done. And I, I wonder if that that might be some of what's playing there. So I don't know if I jumped the gun on anything you were going to say, but that's, that's just something I was thinking of. Yeah, I wasn't going to get too much into that, but you're right. The uh, historical context of when Jeremiah is... Uh, making this prophecy is important because it would have been at a time where Israel would think that God had abandoned them. Uh, but God hasn't abandoned them. Uh, he makes a promise to renew his relationship with them. And the author of Hebrews is writing this at, at such a time uh, into a people in a, in a situation of, of transition uh, that this prophecy applies to them. You know, th this isn't just uh, like proof texting. Uh, there's a reason why it's important that the, the people of the new covenant might feel like they were abandoned. They had a lot of enemies and they had their, their primary enemies were God's covenant people, right? It was Israel. Um, they were the ones persecuting the new Testament Christians and um, we'll get into, uh, you know, wh what the appeal here is. Why, why is the, why is this called the letter to the Hebrews? You know, he's writing to uh, Jewish converts to Christianity and basically arguing for them to abandon the, uh, the temple, the sacrificial system and, and get out of Jerusalem. So you're right that that uh, context of the original prophecy is important here uh, they would have felt abandoned but God is renewing uh, his covenant with them and he hasn't forgotten them um, should I continue yeah yeah keep going keep going where you left off okay uh, now in the next section here um, he is, is he says that uh, they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother saying know the lord for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest of them now i want to put that on pause just for a second and address the next section before i get to that uh for i will be merciful to their iniquities and i will remember their sins no more uh so we have uh, in this new covenant promises the forgiveness of sins but uh, again this is not something that is uh unique to the new covenant Psalm 103, 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our, our transgressions from us. Isaiah 1, 18, come now, let us reason, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. Micah 7, 19, he will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Isaiah 43:25. I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. So God has always been forgiving the sins of his people. Uh, this is not what's new. Um, 
But the author of the book of Hebrews does take this section that I that I just quoted about the forgiveness of sins in chapter 10, and he and he has an, uh, an interpretation and an application for us. So later on in Hebrews chapter 10, he says uh, in verse 11, Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. So the, the priests are doing these sacrifices that are uh, typological in nature. They don't actually forgive sins. They point to the thing that forgives sins, which is in verse 12, he says, But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us. For after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their heart. I will write them uh, on, on their mind and their sins and lawless deeds. I will remember no more. Now where there is forgiveness for, of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. So the apostle tells us here that uh, sins no longer being remembered in his quotation from Jeremiah. Uh, it means that there is no longer a sin offering required. You see what he's saying? Where there, there is forgiveness of sins, there is no longer any offering for sin. So his, he's making a point about the end of the ceremonial sacrificial system. He's taking this quotation from Jeremiah here a couple of chapters later and giving it the application of, see, we don't need to make sacrifices anymore. So given how the, the author interprets the passage a little bit later, um, he has a different application than uh, the idea that only the new covenant uh, or the, only the members of the new covenant are, have their sins forgiven. That, that's not how he applies this quotation from Jeremiah, he says, this means, well, we don't, we have no more sin offerings. Sacrifices need to stop. That's how he interprets it. So uh, I think that's important to uh, understanding why the the author has quoted the text to begin with. Um, not, the new covenant is just like the old in the sense that God is their God and they are his people. He writes the law in their hearts and he forgives sins. What is new is something that is uh, negated in the New Covenant, something that ceases. It's a certain kind of teaching. The context of Hebrews 8 is the sacrificial system. It's the temple. It's primarily the priesthood and how Christ is a better priest than those that labored in the temple. What is new about the New Covenant is the end of the ceremonial system administered by the Levites. And this is in light of Christ's final sacrifice and permanent priesthood. The Levitical system has become obsolete, and that's what is passing away. So that's sort of my conclusion. Now I'm going to argue for it. Um, at first, I'll say, if you read uh, the book of Hebrews from from basically chapter 3, chapter 3, verse 1, all the way through the end of chapter 10, you, you will see that the, the primary subject is the priesthood. It's comparing the Levitical ceremonial priesthood, the uh, tabernacle and the temple priesthood, to the priesthood of Christ, who uh, is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. He, he's not the last Levitical priest. It's a whole different priesthood that uh, replaces the Levitical priesthood. I, I don't think there's much disagreement that that's kind of like the, the primary thrust of uh, the book of Hebrews. And if you go through, there, there's a mention 
uh, every single chapter leading up to chapter 8 of Christ as the new priest. Um, I'll skip it for time, but go through and read it. You'll read chapter 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. Everything up to chapter 8 is about Christ being a priest. Um, Now I want to talk about the specifics of uh, they shall all know me from the the least of them to the greatest. Um, They shall not teach his fellow citizen and everyone know his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. Now I want to talk about this... um, the phrase from the least of them to the greatest uh i'm i'm just going to read off some notes here but uh, before i do i want to give credit this is not my brand new interpretation uh this is something that i first read in the book uh the case for covenantal infant baptism uh the article by jeffrey d neal is is called uh the newness of the new covenant uh and I've done further study from that. I'd also recommend uh, there's an article. Maybe you can link it in the YouTube comments or uh, description. Um, it's by a fella, uh, the name of Christian Locatel. Uh, and uh, he wrote an article called Jeremiah 3134, New Covenant Membership and Baptism. Uh, and uh, we should put that in the description. Um yeah, yeah, we'll it, put that in the show notes. Yeah. It, it, it's it's worth reading, and it's short, but it, it's well-sourced. Um, <clears throat> all right, so now I want to talk about the this phrase, least to the greatest. The The Hebrew words here for least and greatest are, uh, you can correct me because I don't speak Hebrew, but uh, katan and gadol. Uh, and when these two words are used in connection with one another and are referring to persons throughout the Old Testament, they always refer to classes or ranks of people. Uh, the Im- the implication being that the meaning of the passage is not to convey something about every single individual, uh, but something that transcends class distinctions. Uh, namely, the end of the distinction between the layman, the commoners, that would be the least of the people, and the Levitical priestly class, those would be the greatest of the people. Um, and, the- and they were considered great. Um, they were a people that were set apart. They had a special role to teach and instruct the people of Israel. Um, I, I'll, I'll give some uh, other Old Testament examples of this phrase, uh, least to the greatest, which isn't always translated uh, least to greatest. Sometimes it's uh, small and great. Uh, uh, there's other versions too. I'm just going to give a few examples. Deuteronomy 1.17 You shall not show partiality in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not fear man, for the judgment is God's. So the impartiality here is not about like small people, like uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like midgets dwarfs, or something. Man. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it's people that are small in stature versus to great. Those with power and those with less power. You're not uh, supposed to show uh, partiality uh, partiality is a judge. Um, Jeremiah 42. Now it's important. Jeremiah actually uses this phrase several times. So I think it's important in understanding how he, he's using it in chapter 31 with how he uses it in the rest of the book. Um, Jeremiah 42. Then all yeah, that's, the, a, that, that's a, sorry, I, that's a good, uh, hermeneutical, principle is if you have a use of a word you you want to see how the author used it earlier if possible right mm-hmm. like it can change like the apostle paul uses the word law several different ways but yeah, it's always helpful to know 12 how 
Yeah. It's it, you got to know how he uses it. Otherwise, you're just inputting your own thoughts into it. So this is this part's very vital. What you're about to say, I think. So uh, right. Just so you know, to summarize before I finish, the point here is that least to the greatest uh, does not necessarily mean every single individual in the new covenant. Uh, because least of the greatest, when used by Jeremiah and other times in the Old T- Testament, least of the greatest doesn't mean every uh, individual. It's just all kinds of people. And that's important to what the argument that the author of Hebrews is making. But I'll read Jeremiah 42. Then all the commanders of the forces, uh, Johanan, the son of Korea, Jezaniah, the son of Hoshiah, and all the people, small and great, approached and said to Jeremiah the prophet, please let our petition come before you and pray for us to the Lord your God. That is for all this remnant because we are left but a few out of many as your own eye now sees us. So they came, uh, the small and the great, the least to the greatest. They came, but even in, in this small passage, this is defined as a remnant, few out of many. Not every single person came. This is saying that the the remnant that did come had representatives uh, from the least to the greatest of the people of Israel, the the commoners and uh, the 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 high status people. Uh, Jeremiah six thirteen, for from the least of them to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for for gain, and from the prophet even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. So in this. Uh, use of the least to the greatest of them we're specifically told that it even uh, goes up to the prophet and the priest so the priest here is uh, identified as the greatest of them and uh, we also know that not every single individual in Israel was greedy for gain Uh, Jeremiah wasn't and, and, and speaking of the inclusion, and he's a prophet, but it says from the prophet even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. So here, uh, every, uh, the least of them to the greatest is not every single individual. Um, uh, Jeremiah 8, Therefore I will give their wives to others, their fields to new owners, because from the least even to the greatest, everyone is guilty, everyone is greedy for gain. From the prophet even to the priest, everyone practices deceit. Now, we know that there was a remnant in Jeremiah, so it's not every single individual in Israel and Judah were uh, greedy for gain. But his point is that it's from the, the, the poorest, most humble, common person all the way to the, uh, the, the priesthood and, and the other people claiming to be prophets. Uh, they're, they're all greedy for gain. There should be a distinction there, but there, but there isn't one. I, I I think what you're saying is not hard to grasp because Calvinists understand this, right? Right. All means all. Like we always know, hear that, all means all, but it doesn't always mean all. Right? I mean, like it, sometimes it means uh, uh, all without distinction. Like it can mean every single individual, but it, it, sometimes it means uh, 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 various different classes of people. And uh, uh, I was just speaking to somebody the other day about the uh, – Timothy, pray on behalf of all people, and then he mentions kings, and then says, because for God desires all to come to the knowledge of, of God, and, and 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 so they were pushing back on Calvinism, so you see God wants everybody, you know, and 
And the context of that all shows that we're talking about the same thing you're talking about here. Um, or Titus talks about the, the grace of God has been revealed to everybody. And uh, 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 the context, again, he was talking about older women, younger women, older men, younger men, slaves, civil magistrates. It's classes of people. So uh, um, I, I don't think that they're, what you're saying is strange. It may be strange for us to hear it in the context of what you're, this passage. But Well, people aren't going to uh, like uh, it. <laughs> the people who typically use this verse the way we talked, or this passage the way we talked about earlier, aren't going to like this. But I, I would make an appeal to anybody listening to this. If you're in the camp and you think Hebrews chapter 8 proves that the new covenant is comprised of only the elect, uh, think think this through. Try to be consistent. Uh, interpret this passage the way that you would the rest of the Bible. If you're a Calvinist, interpret this passage the, the same way that you would interpret the passages that the Arminians use against you. Be fair. Be consistent. Uh, Jeremiah is not using the phrase least to the greatest to mean every single individual uh, multiple times. Uh, so be fair. That's, that's what I'm going to say uh, about, I'm glad you brought up the Calvinist thing because a lot of the, the uh, arguments coming that the new covenant is strictly the elect are obviously Calvinist because they have a certain view of election. Um, the least to the greatest refers to all classes of people, not necessarily every individual. And I have some more verses I can throw out here. Genesis 19.4 and uh, verse 11. Deuteronomy 1.17. Jeremiah 42.1 and 2. Jeremiah 6.13. Jeremiah 8.10. Jeremiah 44.12. 1 Samuel 5.9. Esther 1.5. 1, 1 Chronicles 25.8. And uh, even in the New Testament, uh, a similar usage of this type of phrase is used. Uh, so, uh, in the New Testament, you know, you, you had the Septuagint, it's the Greek translation. Those words, least to the greatest, I, I don't speak Greek, so maybe you can correct the way I pronounce this, but micros and, and megas, it looks like megas, uh, it looks like micro and mega, uh, and, and these are translated, uh, these are the words used here, and elsewhere in the New Testament, when these words are used, uh, they do not refer to every single individual. You can see this in Acts uh, 26 verses 20 to 22 when uh, Paul is uh, talking to the king he is uh, he's before the, the the micro and the mega he he's in front of the small and the great alike uh, you see this in Acts chapter 8 verses 9 and 10 Revelation uh, chapter 11 verse 18 and Revelation chapter 19 verse 18 um, so then the least to the greatest refers not to all without exception, but all without distinction. Uh, that's typically how we uh, word that. with uh, Not all without exception, but all without distinction. Um, I would highly recommend that a Christian uh, Locatel article goes uh, into much greater depth on this uh, um, use. Uh, I have a paragraph here I was going to read, but I'm, I'm going to skip it for the sake of time. Um, if anybody is further interested in, in that or, or wants some more references and uh, other studies of that uh, word combination, check that out and uh, I'll remind you to link it in, in the description. Um, now, I want to talk about something else here. So, what's said here is that uh, 
They shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord. Uh, they'll all know the Lord from the least to the greatest. So we've already seen that this can and I think does mean without distinction. Uh, they, they all know God. So what does it mean to know God here? Does it mean to know God salvifically? <clears throat> now, my argument basically is that the author of Hebrews is using this text as uh, evidence, as further proof that the Levitical priesthood is passing away. So how would, how would this use of the text uh, do that? Well, the Levites were uh, set apart by God, and specifically they were set apart by God to teach his people knowledge. Um, Numbers 3.11 says, Again the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Now behold, I have taken the Levites from among the sons of Israel, instead of every firstborn, the first issue of the womb among the sons of Israel, so the Levites shall be mine. So there's a sense that the Levites are set apart and belong to God. But Nehemiah 13.29, Remember them, O my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. And it's interesting here that uh, the Levitical priesthood is called the covenant of the priesthood. And I want you to keep in mind that at the beginning of this um, section here in Hebrews 7, he, or 8, 7, he says, For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. So we already talked about how he's not um, nullifying or voiding out all of the covenants that came before. But there is something that is, and uh, the Levitical priesthood itself is described as a covenant. Uh, Micah, or I'm sorry, Malachi, chapter two, verse four. Uh, I think this is really significant. Then you will know that I have set, that I have sent this commandment to you, that my covenant may continue with Levi, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him as an object of reference. So he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth and unrighteousness was not found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and he turned many back from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should preserve knowledge and men should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But as for you, you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by the instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. So the Levites were considered great in Israel. Uh, they were separated out by God, and it was their job to teach the people. So um, uh, to, to further kind of understand this is consistent with the rest of the New Testament. Uh, the ceremonial law was always intended to point out, uh, to point to our need for Christ, uh, which is why Paul says in Galatians 3, Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we, we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. So the law, the and that's the uh, ceremonial law there, uh, you can tell from the context, uh, was always meant to be a tutor, a teacher, and it was to, to give the people knowledge. But uh, if the Levitical priesthood is passing away, a way of describing the Levitical priesthood being uh, uh uh, retired, it becoming obsolete, would be to say that no longer shall one teach his neighbor, neighbor to know the Lord, 
for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest. Uh, and I, I think that that makes a lot more sense with the context um, than pulling it out and just saying, well, this just means the new covenant is only the regenerate. That's not what the book of, uh, of Hebrews is about. That's not what the author is talking about. He's talking about the priesthood and the greatness of Christ re replacing that Levitical uh, ceremonial priesthood. So, uh, uh, to kind of summarize, you kind of did there, but let me summarize again. The context of this passage is in the book of Hebrews, where we've got Jesus greater than angels, Jesus greater than Moses, Jesus greater than the tabernacle, and Jesus greater than the Levites, and how the coming of Christ has made the ceremonial law uh, obsolete in that it was all pointing to Christ, and now Christ has come. And so the people of God are not supposed to go back to the ceremonial law. They're not supposed to go back, and, and they don't need to become, if you're Gentiles, you don't need to become Jews. The Hebrews don't need to continue. Uh, they, they don't need to go along with the, the uh, Judaizers and the Pharisees and the rabbinical teaching because Christ has come, and he's greater. And your argument is that this quote from Jeremiah is not, inserted into this argument to then say see everyone is uh, uh, re regenerate there's not a mixed covenant here but it's inserted here he's using this as a proof text of God's promise that Christ was going to come and that these types and shadows were going to disappear in particular the Levitical priesthood so that is that a fair way to summarize your argument yeah, absolutely. I think it's uh, a more consistent way to read the passage, and I think it's the way that uh, we would read other passages in the Bible. Uh, we would look at that context. We would look at the use of those words, especially by the same author. Um, and uh, we would also look at what our interpretation, uh, how it is consistent with are other interpretations elsewhere in scripture using scripture to interpret scripture so yeah you summarized it there i want to add something else uh to this understanding so the author says that um they don't have to teach each other uh to know the lord for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest and there's an implication to this that uh what the levites represented or what their function was in the old covenant uh it it becomes obsolete and disappears but it, it doesn't in the sense that they all now know God from the least to the greatest. Uh, and uh, I think that um, the, the Protestant understanding of the uh, priesthood of all believers comes into play here. Um, I want to read something from, else from the Old Testament because this could sound like a... Uh, I'm, I'm going to make something sound like a contradiction. <laughs> I think I know where okay. you're going. Yeah. Uh, so um, in in Jeremiah uh, chapter 33, so a couple of chapters later, uh, we have something uh, that is said about um, the the Levites. It's something about the uh, the covenant of David and also the Levites. And uh, I want I want to read this 33, starting at verse 17. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel, and the Levitical priests shall never lack a man before me to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to prepare sacrifices continually. 
the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, If you can break my covenant for the day uh, and my covenant for the night, so that the night will not be appointed at their time, then my covenant may also be broken with David, my servant, so that he will not have a son to reign on his throne, and with the Levitical priest, my ministers. So basically he's saying, if you can make the, the sun and the moon uh, stop coming up and going down, then you could break this covenant I've made that I'll always have uh, someone sitting on David's throne, and I'll always have the Levites making offerings. Uh, at verse 22, uh, as the host of the heaven cannot be counted, and the sand of the sea uh, cannot be measured, so I will multiply the descendants of David my servant and the Levites who minister to me. So if what I'm saying about the Levitical priesthood uh, and what the, the author of Hebrews says is that it uh, becomes obsolete and passes away, uh, how is uh, chapter 33 of Jeremiah also true that uh, God never lacks a Levite to minister to him? And, and the Levites uh, continue to make burnt offerings and burnt grain offerings. So uh, how can both be true? Well, uh, you, you want to take a swing at it? <laughs> sure, sure, yeah. Well, because I was thinking about this very thing, like uh, uh, there's ser several things in the Old Testament that are, that are called everlasting, and the Levitical priesthood is one of them. Right. And, and yet we have this, it seems like, okay, this is a contradiction. Or, you know, I, when I was in Israel and I, I was talking to Jews, some of them claimed to have be from the Levitical line. And so they would have brought something like this up. Got to have an answer for it, I think. Uh, um, I, I think what you, you've already kind of laid out the case is that the priesthood in its um, practice of the in the Old Testament of offering animal sacrifices of... Uh, if you want to say even being passed down from uh, father to son, a certain tribe, and therefore set up above has been done away with because of Christ and what he has done. But it's the substance of it, of a priestly class of people, has not been. Because in the New Testament, we are called what? The, the a, a nation of priests, right? A kingdom of priests, and so uh, I, I think this is where you're going with it. I'll let you keep going. I don't want to steal your thunder, right? So it, I think in order for these words in Jeremiah 33 to be interpreted in a uh, new covenant context, uh, the words of Peter and uh, the passage in uh, Revelation are important. First uh, Peter two four says, "And coming to him is a living stone which has been rejected by men." But as choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. And uh, Revelation 1 6 says, And he made us to be a kingdom of priests to his uh, God and Father. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So, if my interpretation of the, uh, the book of Hebrews here, uh, is correct and the Levitical priesthood then uh, basically becomes everyone from the least to the greatest we all have that special knowledge and instruction uh, then that is consistent with what we're told elsewhere that we still have a priesthood uh, 
we have to because Jeremiah 33, just like we have uh, David has a son on his throne. Who is it? It's Christ. The Levites still have ministers ministering to God. Who is it? It's us. It's the church. We are a kingdom of priests and we are a, uh, a spiritual house and a holy priesthood. Yeah, so, we, we offer up a, a so we, we think about all the sacrifices have been done away with. Well, yes and no. Right, the Jesus made the one atoning sacrifice, the Yom Kippur, the 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 sacrifice that covers sins, all the guilt offerings, all those things have been completed in Christ. And yet, there were still Thanksgiving offerings that were given in the Old Testament, and vows and things that people made, and those are carried over by us now. As uh, uh, what is uh, what is our our reasonable duty? Paul says, right, is to offer up our bodies as a living sacrifice. We also see in Revelation that the prayers of God's people rise up in the heavens like incense. Incense is not one of those forever things. And 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 now it's our prayers. So we, we are still doing priestly duties. In fact, the, uh, Paul's praying on behalf of all nations is the work of priests. We, when we pray and we gather in, in, in time for corporate worship, we are doing the work of priests, of praising God, of worshiping, lifting up prayers on behalf of others, reconciling um, the world to Christ. Uh, uh, and I think I think that is the work that we do. Right, and you can even take the uh, typology of the temple. You know, we, we are God's temple. But who labors in God's temple? It was the priests. Uh, so. Uh, the, the Protestant doctrine of the uh, the priesthood of all believers is, uh, is is related to this whole conversation. Um, now, uh, I've sort of made my argument from the, the context of uh, the, the book of Hebrews, but I want to talk also about the, the implications of how we interpret this passage. So, we believe... Uh, Presbyterians, sort of classic covenant uh, theology, we believe in uh, a mixed covenant uh, throughout both the Old and the New Testament. Uh, mixed covenant meaning that God's covenant people are set apart from the world, but within that covenant people, there are also elect and non-elect. There are uh, non-elect covenant members. Um, and is there anybody who doesn't believe that about the Old Covenant? I I think there's pretty much universal agreement about that, right? Uh, so, but in the New Testament, we we have those that say that the New Covenant is comprised of only the elect. That Hebrews chapter eight passage is used to support that. But if the New Covenant is comprised of only the elect, we've got some some problem passages, and uh, these problem passages are kind of like the same passages that Arminians would use to prove that people can lose their salvation. And, uh, I, you know, if, if you don't have this understanding of, of the new covenant, that it's still a, a mixed community, you might have a lot harder of a problem answering those Arminians as a Calvinist. Um, because you have some language used to describe people being in, in one state or receiving certain kinds of things being in Christ that then later they're, they're removed or they, they, they lose those things that they had. And if you don't have the category of a non elect covenant member, 
those Arminians can run circles around you using some of these passages, I think. Um, do, do we have time to go over some of these? Yeah, yeah, that's uh, – uh, um, yeah, because I, I, think, I think it's important to get the implications. This will be our little mega episode on this, so yes. Okay. Uh, 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 go into it a little bit, yeah. All right, so um, uh, but I think by implication, the, the warning passages in the New Testament ac- actually prove that it's comprised of both the elect and non-elect. Uh, I want to consider uh, John uh, chapter 15, uh, starting at verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes so that it may bear more fruit. So you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. So in this passage, Christ is describing his disciples, people, as being in him. And there are branches that are in him that if they bear enough fruit, they're they're cut off they're, they're taken out now if we understand being in christ as uh strictly uh soteriological um yeah i mean you're regenerate you've been elect you're regenerate you're you actually are in the very i think one way to, to make the distinction you're in the very substance of what it, the covenant is and like you're, you're you're if we if we take it to mean that then what well then, how can how can you be cut off? Uh, exactly, it, right? You know, then then you can lose your salvation. But if there is a sense in which you are in Christ, He He is your covenantal head, right? Um, that uh, in the uh, uh, book of First Corinthians, Paul says they were baptized into Moses. He He was their covenant head. They They didn't like go inside Moses. He wasn't like a giant guy. It, it It's covenantal language. Right to be in Christ is is covenantal. It means that He is our head. He's our representative, and if He is truly our representative and remains our representative, if we remain, if we abide in the branches, if God prunes us and we bear fruit and we and we abide and we stay, then uh, we we're not cut off and cast into the fire. Um, uh, the the same kind of see God's covenant. Uh, I think. A good way to describe it is organic. Um, it's not a it's not a stainless steel machine, right? It's not a factory where people go in and they and they come out and uh, regenerate and uh, resurrected or whatever. It's it's organic. It's something that he has grown and developed over time. It's something that he's added added some things to and he's taken some things out. People get added to it and people get removed. Um, and that's what we see in real life, like in in the church, uh, uh, in our ecclesiology, in the, yeah, in the covenant. Yeah, in the covenant community, the the the, the external, um, visible church. Right, God is. We see that all the time. Right. It it operates like the way rest the rest of life does. It changes. You know, it grows. It shrinks back. It it gets stronger. It gets weaker. And. Uh, you know, God does that for his different reasons. It's his vine. 
but uh, it, I, I think that the view that the covenant is only the regenerate, only the elect, takes away that kind of organic um, aspect to the way the covenant's described. Uh, Romans 11 uses the same kind of um, symbolism. Paul says, Romans 11, 13, But I am speaking to you who are Gentiles, inasmuch that I am an apostle of the Gentiles. Uh, I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also holy, and the root is holy, the branches are holy too. But if some branches were broken off, and you, he's speaking to the Gentiles, uh, the, the, uh, the Jewish uh, branches were broken off, the Gentiles are added on. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them, and being a partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant towards the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off and I might be grafted in. Quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief, but you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Behold the kindness and severity of God to those who fell severity, but to you God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you will also be cut off. Um, how does this how does this passage make sense if the if being in Christ or being in the olive tree which I don't see any other way around it being God's covenant community uh, if you can be cut off then how is the new covenant strictly the elect the elect can't can't lose their election right I mean that's kind of what it means by definition um, I'm gonna hammer a few more out First uh, 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 Corinthians ten, um, describing the Israel going through the Red Sea, Paul says, "Now these things happened as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally, as some of them did, and twenty-three thousand fell in one door one day." Nor let us try the Lord, as some of them did, and they were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and they were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore let him thinks he stands, take heed that he does not fall. So Paul describes the New Testament Christians, and he uses the example of the Israelites, that mixed covenant community that went through the Red Sea, was saved by God. Those were God's chosen people. That's what he says. I, I loved you. I chose you. I brought you out of Egypt. Uh, out of uh, Egypt. I brought my son. You know, I carried you in my arms. But then what happens to them? They die. They get punished for, for their lack of faith. Ex except for some. Some make it through. Uh, and then Paul says, Be careful that that doesn't happen to you. And he's writing to Christians in the New Testament church. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10. Um, de describing uh, further the priesthood and the ceremonial system. Hebrews 10, 26, Dear friends, if we deliberately continue sinning after we have received knowledge of the truth, there is no longer any sacrifice that will cover these sins. There is only the terrible expectation of God's judgment and the raging fire that will consume his enemies. 
For anyone who refused to obey the law of Moses was put to death without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Just think how much worse the punishment will be for those who have trampled on the Son of God and have treated the blood of the covenant, which made us holy, as if it were common and un unholy, and have insulted and disdained the Spirit, uh, which brings God's mercy to us. Uh, he goes on to say the Lord will judge his own people. So you have here a description of somebody who... Um, has trampled on the Son of God and treated the blood of the covenant, which made us holy, as if it were common and unholy. Who is this person who's who's uh, been set apart? You know, this is a non-elect covenant member. If you don't have that category in in your theology, I'm not sure if you would say this is strictly a theoretical warning that's actually impossible, uh, or is this describing someone who was never in the new covenant right uh, but if they were not in the new covenant what is this language that they have treated the blood of the covenant which made us holy as if it were common and unholy um, and why does he say the Lord will judge his own people hmm. uh, so uh, one of the things then from this this application of this which is I think is important, is that it teaches us to take these warning passages seriously, though not to presume upon the grace of God, and not to presume necessarily even on the um, the external signs. Right? You can you can be baptized as a baby, or you you could uh, have grown up and made a uh, profession of faith. You walked the aisle one day and you you got baptized. And these warnings teach us that, yes, we're actually, the baptism and God's kindness brought us into that covenant community with his people. We're part of the covenant. And yet, uh, uh, those things in and of themselves aren't what saves us. It's the grace of God. It's, it's Christ Jesus. And so we must never, ever turn from trusting in him and him alone. Not, not to go back to the way they, they would have gone back to the to the sacrificial system and to go back to other ways and means to try to be saved. Uh, instead, these warnings, I think, teach us that we have to keep our faith in Christ. We have to keep our eyes firmly fixed on him, right? Running the race with our eyes fixed on Christ. And uh, um, that's the working out of our salvation with fear and trembling, I think, that the apostle Peter tells us about. It's it is uh it's by faith that we uh grasp onto these promises and um i think it's so important to have that distinction uh, to not have that distinction can doesn't necessarily have to but i think it can cause you to to lean on or to trust in your decision Right, you made a decision, or you walked an aisle, you you said a prayer, you did something, and then you had a profession of faith, and so your faith is in your faith, faith is in in what you're trusting on. Now, there obviously, I think, with uh, infant baptism or other things, there's always dangers to put your faith in these external things to save you. And I think by rightfully understanding the covenants, we realize our faith isn't in the covenant signs; they're the, in the things that points to which is Christ. And 
let me ask you this then. I've kind of given the answer, but I'll give you a chance to ask it. Are you saying then that, okay, we're brought into the covenant by faith and then we got to stay in by our works and, and that kind of thing? Uh, definitely not saying that. Uh, okay, okay. Faith, faith is a gift, right? It's a gift from God. Um, but the way that we live in this life, the way we live out our faith um, is, uh, well, it's also a gift from God. But, uh, you know, it's it's through, um, Paul calls it the obedience of faith. Um, we, are, we are called to examine ourselves to make sure that we are still in the faith. Um, we are not saved by our faith. We are saved uh, by God's grace uh, through our faith in him. Our, our trust in him is how he counts us uh, is righteous. It's a uh, substitutionary atonement made by the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he becomes our uh, mediator of uh, covenant. He becomes our representative. But we have to remain and, and we have to remain by the faith that God gives us. Um, faithfulness and faith are important over and over and over again in Scripture. We're, we are called to a lifetime of repentance and faith, not, not a single decision. Uh, we have to make decisions every day, multiple decisions every day, to be faithful or unfaithful. Um, and th that is how we live in God's covenant. That's why he warns us because we can make unfaithful decisions and we can make them uh, in such a way as to be um, removed from Christ. Or as Paul says, he, uh, he removes uh, and hands over the brother to Satan because he's uh, having relationships with his uh, father's wife. Um, but but what what where was he? He was a part of the covenant community. He was one of them. Um, uh, we're we're told that uh, in Revelation uh, chapters two and chapter three, um, in chapter two, the church in Ephesus they're they're a church, and Jesus says that he'll come to them and remove their lampstand unless you repent. So this was a, a church. Uh, and the lampstands in the book of Revelation are generally interpreted that they are partakers of the Holy Spirit. They're a true church. But uh, Christ says that if they don't repent, that he's going to come and take that lampstand away. They're not going to be a church anymore. Um, uh, he says in the very next chapter to uh, the church in Laodicea that the... Um, that they're neither hot nor cold, so he's going to spit them out of his mouth. Well, they're in Christ, but he's going to spit them out um, because they're neither hot nor cold. Uh, this is a church. It's the church in Laodicea. Uh, th this is how God teaches us to think about his church. So we're not saying saved by works, obviously, but God is saying abide in Christ. Keep your faith. Repent. Don't don't be lukewarm. Um, Hebrews three says, "Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God." Um, but a lot, oftentimes, it's important to point out these warnings 
they'll have something right after them. And it'll say, like in Hebrews 3, it'll say, it'll say, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ, if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance, firm until the end. There's always hope. It's not a warning like, you blew it, uh, you're done. One sin and you're out. But it's repent. Maintain the faith. Yeah. Think about why you believed in the beginning. Yeah, because you're you're not brought in by by uh, you're you're saved by grace, every aspect of it, and, and it is through faith, all of it, uh, and faith alone. But that faith always has the fruit. It always it always produces works. Faith, the, the living faith, the faith that saving faith is never alone. We're saved by faith alone, but it's never alone. And 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 so like you, the the man that had the his father's wife uh, has revealed that he, he's not trusting Christ. He's fallen away, and and in that sense, his faith was never real. Though his covenant status was, and he's being cast out, being given over to Satan. And I think with the hope that uh, uh, he's still one of the elect, there is still a hope there. That, uh, right, that he would uh, he would be that God would grant him repentance. He's cast out in the hopes that he would repent. Right, that, that's what yeah. Paul says there. There's always a, there's always a glimmer of hope after these warnings. And so, um, well, hey, brother, we have covered quite a bit here. I know there might be a lot of questions that people have. Um, I, I can wait for a my lot book. Of... <laughs> <laughs> I just I made so many notes. I need to publish a book. <laughs> You should, yes. I think uh, uh, there's a lot of application from this that goes into the nature of the church, nature of eschatology. Can uh, can even nations uh, can they be Christian and those type of things? I think a lot of these things flow from this uh, um, practical application. I think we were kind of hitting at is that don't put your faith in external things put your faith in Christ and the external things are to point you to Christ right are your baptism the Lord's Supper all these signs are signs of something they point us to Christ and uh, cling to him and if you cling to him you'll be saved because you have faith and if you're able to do that guess what you didn't do that that was God. That's right. God grace. chose you. Yeah, God's grace and His mercy, and what a. And so there's great hope. Like the the I think the warnings are to cause us to tremble in fear, and they're real. But at the same time, they're not to cause us to uh, uh, to be terrified in a sense of like, uh, uh, I'm going to lose my salvation. No, trust the Lord. That if you're even those kind of questions, I think lead to a uh, uh, trusting in yourself again, as it, if it's all about you. Yeah, but if the warning passages uh, do instill a sense of fear in you, that fear might be healthy as well. It, it's the people that hear those warning passages and think they don't matter. Those are the people that are in trouble, right? Yeah, yeah. 
like on one hand you could say okay those things will never matter to me because Christ has kept me and I'm clinging to Christ on the other hand to say well you know I said this decision a long time ago and I don't have to do nothing I got baptized long I yeah but to, to have I think we ought to have confidence that Christ will save us while recognizing yeah we've got a these are real warnings for us Jesus Jesus warnings are real we ought to take them very seriously and while at the same time maintaining our maintaining our assurance and our hope and and those things so Zach I appreciate you coming in on on the on the podcast again and uh, uh, again somebody wants to ask you a question best way to get a hold of you I guess is uh, Facebook is that right yeah uh, Facebook Zachariah Jackson Zachariah spelled with an e z e c h a r i a h and if anybody really uh, wants um, to communicate with me uh, through email too it might be better if you want to have more of like a something formal or a better longer form conversation my email is my name Zachariah dot jackson at gmail.com so, uh, so my name zachariah dot jackson at gmail well it, it's not my name <laughs> <laughs> so don't, whose name is it don't put all right it's my name but don't spell my name <laughs> but spell it and that's my email okay, <laughs> okay. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed this episode. You know, we got into some deeper discussion on covenant theology and in particular the nature of the new covenant. There was more that could be said, but I would encourage you to study it on your own. Men need to be able to study God's word deeply and then live in light of what they have studied. It's not enough to just be interested in deep theology. You have to apply it and live it practically out. That's what the Bible's meant for. It's not just a study book for your uh, intellectual curiosities. It is a, a life manual, a manual to live uh, in light of what God has done and what he has said. So take what we have talked about here and live in light of it. Greatest application is simply never stop trusting in Christ. Keep your hope firmly fixed on him. 1 Peter 1.13 says, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Men, we have a race to run. We have to run it with our eyes firmly fixed on our covenant head, Jesus Christ, the one who ran the race perfectly for us on our behalf. But we have to still have to run the race. We have to run it. We have to run it to win. No one gets in a race to lose. So run to win. Discipline yourself so that you can win this race continue in the faith work out your salvation with fear and trembling so until next time if you've not bowed the knee to jesus now is the time to repent and believe and if you have this is our call to you build fight protect lead this is the patriarchy <laughs>